Hello, and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. This time, our topic is Alternate History Tales, and here to discuss that with me today is Gideon Marcus, an award-winning speculative fiction author, Turtle Dove Award finalist, founder of the Serling Award-winning and Hugo-nominated historical sci-fi and fantasy internet project Galactic Journey, professional space historian, and oh, there's just so much more. He'll be joining us from his home in San Diego County. And here we are with Gideon Marcus. Hello, Gideon. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Would you mind sharing with us what was the first alternate history story you remember reading or watching? And was it also the one that made you kind of become captivated with this subgenre? When I was in high school, I had something of a one-two punch. I read Keith Lommer's Worlds of the Imperium, and I watched Quantum Leap. Uh. And uh, <laughs> Quantum Leap is not exactly alternate history, but it flirts with it. So I've always been fascinated by it ever since. Oh, awesome. You know, I, I often think about if they re rebooted Quantum Leap, like that fancy little piece of uh, gizmo there was the Ziggy, right? It would just be a phone. <laughs> oh, well, it's funny how like the fantastic alternate futures become retro futures, eh? Uh, meanwhile, what was your first crack at writing alt history? And what's the one you're proudest of? Maybe it's not the same. <laughs> so my first professional sale actually was an alternate fiction story called Andy and Tina which was the story of Valentina Tereshkova and uh, Andrei Nikolaev in an alternate history where the Soviets do make it to the moon, although they make it after Apollo. It's, it's not for all mankind. I wrote mine first and it's more plausible. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and there's an interesting sting in the tale of the story, and it ended up being the lead tale in an anthology called Tales from Alternate Earths 2. But I had been on alternatehistory.com for many, many, many years. Um, and before that, the, the Usenet group, alternatehistory.com is basically the biggest archive of alternative history fiction um, on the internet. And it's amazing. It's basically like the AO3 of Althist. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Has it been running a long time? Oh my goodness, uh, at least since the early 2000s. I had a very long running timeline of which Andy and Tina is basically a small part of this alternate space race that I did post of for, for about a year or two. And it got nominated for the 2011 Turtle Dev Award, which was pretty cool. Right. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so as you say, you've been featured, you know, in an anthology of alternate history tales. And if I understand correctly, you, you've also served elsewhere as an editor. What do you feel makes for a great alternate history story? I would avoid the major fields of alternate history, which are World War II and the American Civil War. Not that those aren't fun. And one of my very favorite timelines is a blunted sickle, which is still going on after eight years, which is where um, France is able to keep Germany from steamrolling them in World War II. Mm -hmm. And he's done this beautifully elaborate timeline after that. But those are eras that are very highly mined. And I'd want to move past that. I'd love to do non-Western histories. I'd love to have a, a very diverse demographic writing the histories 
Um, and I think we're poised for that. One of the neat things about alternatehistory.com that I was surprising and pleased to see is that they actually have quite a number of women who write there. You don't know at first because everybody's got androgynous pseudonyms, but over time I've met a lot of them. One thing I have found, and this may be a controversial view, but I have found that published alternate history tends to not be as good as fan-produced alternate history. There are some you know, notable exceptions. There's the ones that started the genre. You've got Sam Merwin's House of Many Worlds. You've got Keith Lommer. You've got John Brunner's Time Without Number. Um, you've got Harry Turtledove's early stuff is, is seminal. But there's a lot of really crappy alt-hist out there, crappy alt-hist anthologies. But I think that's because these folks who, who post on alternatehistory.com and, and possibly other places really get into it and they do it for the love and they have historical knowledge and some of them are actually quite good writers and i think a lot of alt-hist writers have a rather cursory knowledge of the of the field and you end up with something like uh philip k dick's the man in the high castle where you know i think he read uh, the rise and decline of the third reich and maybe a book on zen buddhism and wrote a book so speaking of looking back to uh, older stories i believe 1890s Tiran L'Eau Blanche by Joannette Mar-Torel. I've seen it's often cited as the first work of alternative history in which the Turks are prevented from seizing Constantinople. However, the genre, I would say, or subgenre really blooms after World War II. I'm wondering if you have a thought on why that was. So a lot of people like to say that science fiction began with Mary Shelley. Some others say it started with Jules Verne. Some say it started with H.G. Wells. Others will generally say it starts with the pulps. And alternate history has always been a smaller genre than science fiction. I think you have to reach critical mass. Otherwise, when, when you get these first seminal works, because there's no genre to name it after, they're just a particular example of the larger fiction of the time. No one could call Mary Shelley's Frankenstein science fiction at the time because there was no such thing. It's only in retrospect that we realize, oh, the DNA of, of this book is now has now been transferred to everything in our genre. And I think it's the same with alternate history. When L. Sprague de Camp wrote Less Darkness Fall, when, when Sam Irwin wrote House of Many Worlds, these were genre-defining books. And even then, alternate history wasn't really called alternate history. It was just part of the spec fic umbrella. I think Turtle Dove popularized it a lot because that was what he did. I mean, he did a lot. He does other stuff too, of course, but he really made his name with Agent of Byzantium and uh, of different, No Different Flesh and uh, uh, Guns of the South. And all of a sudden we've got, oh, there's this thing called alternate history. Let's do this turtle dove-like thing. I mean, there, there's a reason alternatehistory.com calls their yearly award the turtle dove. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's why. I think you had to reach critical mass of participants in it. It's, it's like asking why didn't Dungeons and Dragons come out in the 30s? They had storytelling type games. The answer was it came from a wargaming tradition and the board wargaming tradition didn't start till the 50s. So. Well, speaking of actually Turtle Dove, right? So, you know, as a Turtle Dove award finalist, would you say Harry Turtle Dove is the king of contemporary alternative history speculative fiction? Or is he maybe just the most recognizable name? Maybe neither, you know, I, I don't know. How, where, do you, where do you feel he sits? Is he like the Stephen King of alternate history or is it <laughs> someone we, we should be talking about elsewhere? Or, you know, how did that come about? Because not everybody who lives, who's listening maybe even uh, is familiar with his work. I, I don't want to be hagiographic and, uh, and, and I also don't want him to hit me next time he sees me. So I will say that it is clear that Harry Turtledove has had an effect on the genre. It is also 
clear that um, he makes a significant amount of his living from the brand. And I think that's great. And he, he definitely has opened some doors and, and we're grateful to him for that. Okay, fair enough. It can feel, as you've already touched upon, like, you know, unless, unless you're more familiar with it, it can feel like every other alternate history story you encounter is about the Nazis winning World War II or the Confederates winning the American Civil War. I'm curious what your familiarity might be with alternate history obsessions of other nations, in particular uh, non-Western nations. Unfortunately, um, because all the alt-hist that I tend to read and the major places for alt-hist are in English, you're necessarily going to get a European or American viewpoint on things. And necessarily, it's going to be Western. That doesn't mean you can't get great what-ifs in other settings. I think my favorite one is someone did one called Green Antarctica, where um, a quirk of the climate makes it such that you can have a civilization in Antarctica. But it's a really dark story, and the people there are... It's very social Darwinistic because the things were so harsh and it got hard to read after about the 50th installment. Not saying it wasn't real, but I'm not very good at dark. I've seen some good ones about China. I've seen some good ones about Africa, some good ones about India. I mean, those are, those are always great. Um, and you learn, you learn the real history as you go, right? Because you're like, wait, wait, well, what actually happened? Cause this is all new to me. Cause it's not like they teach this very much in high school. Japan is, yeah. is the country with which I'm most familiar because I have my, I have my degree in Japanese studies and I, and I go there every year. So that stuff, you know, what if Christianity had taken over? What if what if uh, Tokugawa hadn't unified? You know, what if Japan had been successful in Korea? The, these are things that I can understand the history and see the divergence. Everything else is all a brand new delight. And the best authors will have little notes saying, by the way, this is the point of departure. If you're not familiar with the history, this is what's different. By the way, I want to say, Alternate history is not just about wars. One of my very favorite alternate histories is what if Jim Henson had bought Disney in 1980? Sorry, listen, you can't see. My eyes just went wide. Uh, <laughs> it's I, an amazing premise. <laughs> uh, look it up on alternatehistory.com. I think it's called A Frog in the House of the Mouse. And it's it's amazing and extremely detailed and, and lovely and and makes you weep for all the things that might have been because it's it's a history that could have could have well happened that's that's the best alternate history is one where you're like wait this didn't happen this way <laughs> so yeah i mean uh, you kind of covered a little bit of what i was going to ask next which is um how transferable do you feel alternate history stories are you know would say the yiddish policeman's union set in alaska with its focus on jewish culture get any traction in japan and are there any non-Western alternate history stories which have made inroads into the what if Hitler had won Western audience? Or are alt-history stories so rooted in particular cultures, historical fixations, that it limits their markets in ways most speculative fiction is not? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is alternate history is still necessarily a subsection of speculative fiction as a whole, uh, and therefore does not have a lot of international appeal. It's going to be homegrown people that create their own alternate histories that other people in their markets are interested in reading. I think some people may end up writing an alternate history that is so compelling that it gets translated in other languages and people love it. But that's going to be a novel that stands on its own, not just because it's an alternate history. So, you know, if, if Nora Jemison decides that she's going to write a 10 part alternate history based on India in the 1500s and it's and it's amazing Hugo winning book, like I'm sure she can write then yeah, that'll get translated everywhere and probably bring a rash of interest in India around the world. But barring something like that, I think 
it's going to be somewhat fragmented. I'm sure there are alternate history sites in other languages that other people frequent and enjoy, but I'm barred from that because of my inadequacy not speaking those other languages. You mentioned uh, a moment ago that some of these stories you come across will have like little explainers. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't encountered that myself, but do you think that that could help? You know, I'm a writer and, and I think the funniest comment I ever see on the internet is, I don't read prologues, I don't read epilogues. <laughs> and I'm just like, what, do you not read chapter seven? I mean, <laughs> and so if you had a book that was heavily annotated or had a large opening section where they said, this is the actual event, now stay tuned for the real event, I think you might lose an audience. I could be wrong. Maybe someone could do it extremely well. I don't know. Maybe multimedia is a better way to do it. You've got the internet and you've got, you can cross, you have a, like a timeline and they're both parallel to each other and you can flop back and forth to see where things are and, and the divergence and the crossover. So Richard Nixon is president in this one and used car salesman in the other one. And it's like, could be interesting. Right, right. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I would check that out. Now, you mentioned a wonderful example of something I'm, I'm uh, about to ask you about here, but I'd love to hear more. So many alternate histories stories hinge on the deaths of notable individuals, the outcomes of wars, and when or if a major technology was invented. Are there any great alternate history stories with more of a butterfly effect type story where someone puts on a red hat instead of a blue one and it somehow leads to humans evolving four legs? You know, just something where like something very small, something that isn't hinging on like a great man, you know, or a great war or whatever kind of thing. So um, there's a great timeline called Dirty Laundry. And the idea is that Don Henley never records that famous song. Uh, and as a result, never gets a solo career after he leaves the Eagles. But the timeline is not about Don Henley. What that is, is it's a premise to start from 1980 and basically re-roll the dice for everything. And by the time you get to the late 80s, it's a completely alien world. The video game collapse of 1983 hasn't happened. Atari owns Nintendo. Um, <laughs> Don Henley is a politician. He has different top 40 for every week. And by the end of the 80s, you're just getting this weird stuff because once you get some divergences, and if you go with the idea that time isn't a river, it can go anywhere you want, and you reroll the dice every minute, then you very quickly get a world that's unrecognizable. I think that's why alternate history focuses so much on people we know, because once you lose the people we know, in some ways you lose interest, right? You're lost. There are certain authors who can do it where it's like it takes place 500 years later. John Brunner did this with Times Without Number, for instance, where he posits a world where um, the Spanish Armada beats England. And now we're 400 years later and the technology is completely different. And it works because they set a compelling world that you're happy to be in. And so it doesn't matter if you don't know everything that's going on. Same thing. Uh, Randall Garrett does it with his uh, with his Lord Darcy stories. The premise to the Lord Darcy stories is King Richard doesn't die. He gets healed with magic. And mm -hmm. as a result, history changes. Instead of developing scientific technology, instead they develop magical technology. And so it takes place in an alternate 1960s where physical technology is somewhere around the Victorian era, but magical technology is, is fairly advanced. And they're murder mysteries. So Lord Darcy is a, is a Sherlock Holmes type character, uh, and he investigates magical related murders. They're quite excellent. Uh, I just finished the novel Murder and Magic, which I think is the only book length story in the series, at least so far. 
but it's brilliantly done in a beautifully realized universe. Uh, and it doesn't really matter that you don't know anything that's going on in terms of the characters or anything. It's enough that you know the vague setting that, that there's this Angovan Empire versus the Polish Empire. And it's, it's just really neat. Well, yeah, you know, that makes me think, like, do you, do you feel that there's uh, maybe a divide in this subgenre between the stories that are written just to, um, to entertain and the stories that are written more to tickle the history nerds who will really get a kick out of seeing all those fine details? Or is there even that distinction? Oh, I think there absolutely is. So on alternatehistory.com, if you are writing a history, you are there to explore. You've got people who are just, hey, what if? And then it's, then it's a group sort of discussion. And then you've got people who write sort of an encyclopedic what if. And then you've got people who are would-be authors, yours truly included, who will write something in a narrative fashion. And those can be very interesting too. And, and often they'll take them and then put them up on Kindle so people can buy them. But their prime interest is, is following the thread of history and seeing where it goes. And I think the story is somewhat secondary, although the best ones can make an interesting story out of anything. Whereas if you're writing a novel, the key thing is that you write an interesting story. Lord Darcy's stories are interesting murder mysteries set in a fun alternate history. That, that's the primary difference. Do you feel it's worth even trying to uh, decide whether or not it's more science fiction or fantasy uh, in the sense of how to categorize it? Well, if science fiction be a subset of fantasy, then alternate history is a closely related cousin of science fiction. And the reason why is the main distinction between science fiction and fantasy is that science fiction makes the assumption that we're playing by the real world's rules. Fantasy mm -hmm. plays by consistent rules. And that's why science fiction is a subset of fantasy because science fiction plays by consistent rules too. But the idea, the conceit is that there are rules even if we haven't discovered all of them yet. And alternate history is the same way. The physical laws are the same. The only difference is the event. So I think it's much more akin to science fiction in a way because it has to take place in our universe. And one could argue in some ways alternate history becomes science fiction, particularly if you have an event that leads to technology that is beyond what we have today. And we project, oh, well, if this had happened, then we would be 50 years ahead of where we are now, and this is the technology we would have. What is that if not science fiction? Now, I'm also wondering, how recently can one reach back, do you think, to write an alternate history story? I mean, are there people writing alternate history stories of the 2016 election? I mean, certainly we see people writing uh, alternate history in their minds as stuff happens. What have you been seeing out there in terms of people trying to be like, well, what if uh, something different had happened uh, in Ferguson in 2014? What if something different had happened in, in sort of very contemporary stories? Like, how, how do you feel about those? There's a whole genre on alternatehistory.com called future histories. And that's all about extrapolating what comes. And then with that, you get really science fiction. It's essentially science fiction, but with a focus on what's the historical trend. Once you, once you make your point of divergence so recent as to essentially be today, then you're just writing pretty much pure science fiction because there's not much difference there. Um, honestly, my favorite, one of my favorite genres of alternate history is called the alien space bat genre. Mm -hmm. So the idea of alien space bats is when you have a deviation in history that is so improbable that it could not have happened, the only way it could happen is if there are alien space bats who make it happen. You've probably read Island in the Stream of Time where Nantucket ends up several centuries in the past. 
That's led to a whole subgenre of alternate history called ISOTs, Island in the Stream of Time. You know, what if uh, modern day San Francisco ISOTed to 50 million BC, whatever. Some of them are really interesting. Some of them are obviously silly. But the only way that can happen is if alien space bats make that happen. Right, right. They, they flap their <laughs> wings. I mean, there's butterflies and then there's alien space bats. By the way, the, the timeline I did was called uh, Sputniks. Okay. And that was that was a pure um, re-roll. So this is probably the most work anyone has ever done to create alternate history. So I don't know if you know, Philip K. Dick wrote Man in the High Castle by randomly determining events using the I Ching. I was unfamiliar with that. <laughs> it's a completely randomly generated book, which is interesting and kind of cool. He was making kind of a meta statement that he never got to finish because there was supposed to be a sequel that he never finished. Sputniks was that to the nth degree. So what, what happened was I developed a simulation whereby two teams, an American team and a Russian team, could play the space race. There were five people on each team. For instance, the American team had a president, a guy running NASA, a guy running NASA unmanned. And I say guy loosely. It was demographically quite varied. We had a person running the CIA and we had a person running Department of Defense. On the Soviet side, we have three people representing the, the three chief builders. And we had a premier and we had a head of the military. And we played in six month turns and each turn they would get a whole bunch of sheets that determine the things they could build. They would allocate money. And then in between every single turn, we would roll to see how the missions did. So each six months was completely randomly generated in terms of results. And based on the results, they developed different things. So as a result, Sputnik launches in October 57, and that is the only fixed event. The space timeline that goes from there was completely determined by the players and their actions over the course of the next 10 years as we would get together twice a year and run the simulation. And, you know, most games that you DM, you know, you spend a few hours preparing for the next session. I would I spent several hundred hours preparing for each seven hour session. So as a result, our timeline goes from 1957 to 1974 uh, and covers a lot of history. And most of it is in the Sputniks thread on alternatehistory.com. And it's a pretty good history, although, man, I, you know, I, 10 years from later, I know a lot more history than I did back then. And, and I think it's still pretty accurate, but every once in a while, I'm like, ah, I wish I could go back. But, you know, that's <laughs> another alternate history, right? Yeah, yeah. You could almost get a Russian nesting doll thing of you writing the alternate history of you writing this alternate history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, I, you know, the next time, uh, you know, I, I do role playing games myself, and the next time uh, one of my players says, "Boy, you you must spend a lot of time on that map," I'll be like, "Let me tell you about spending a lot of time <laughs> on prepping Wait, but a the game." The stories you get. So not only did Andy and Tina come in for, I've got another one called Flight of the Pegasus, which at someday I'll publish. I've got it written where. A Soviet Soyuz, it's not called a Soyuz, but it's essentially a Soyuz, gets stranded in space and rescued by an American X-20 derivative piloted by Neil Armstrong. And this is something that actually happened in the game. And it's a great story and one that someone casually reading would recognize most of the players. But it's something that never happened, even though it's something that could have happened. And that's what I love about alternate history, where you read it and you say, wow, there's a lot of truthiness to this. We're getting to the end here, but I know one thing I really wanted to ask you is, do you feel that the process of writing an alternate history story is dramatically different from writing, say, other speculative fiction or any writing in general? Because you would think there would certainly be a lot more research. 
Again, it depends who you're writing for. If you're writing a novel, the story comes first. And you're right, you have to do your research, but as a science fiction author, you have to get the science right when you write science fiction, and that requires research too. So my advice to anyone writing is write what you know, right? I happen to be a space historian. I happen to have certain bits of history that I know very well. So I stick to those when I do my writing and try not to go outside my, my field of expertise. When I stick within my field of expertise, the writing process is very similar. Now that said, if I'm writing for alternatehistory.com and just want to play with a certain point of departure, then I might go in completely stupid. Um, oh, one of my favorite stories I ever wrote, speaking of things that are not war related and esoteric, I wrote a what if story called Sad All Over. And the premise is that on the same day that Kennedy gets shot, the Beatles came early to Idlewild to appear on the Ed Sullivan show and crash and die. So we have a twin tragedy in the United States, except we don't know it because the Beatles hadn't made it here. And it's told from the perspective of someone who's hip and with the music scene a year later, writing for the Rolling Stone equivalent, talking about how different music is in England than it is in America, because the music scene hasn't changed much in America, but in England, there's completely different sound. And the English sound hasn't come to America because they didn't have a spear tip to do it. And I've had long discussions with people. Some have said, well, the Dave Clark Five would have filled those same shoes. And if you've listened to the Dave Clark Five, I mean, they're not bad, but they aren't the Beatles. So yeah, um, that was a story that I felt I could write because I, you know, I run Galactic Journey. I lived 55 years ago and, and I know the music. So that was something that was very easy for me to write and as easy as writing a science fiction story. If I had to write history of the Mali Empire in, in Africa, I'd feel a lot less comfortable and I'd have to do a lot of homework. I mentioned the Galactic Journey in my introduction to you uh, before we got talking, but would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about it? Because it feels, it's not all history, or is it? I don't know. It feels of a kin with everything we're talking about. Would you, would you mind explaining it to our listeners? So I guess there's a little bit of an alternate history element to it, at least as much as Forrest Gump or Zelig are alternate history. The premise is that I and about 20 other people now are a bunch of science fiction and space nerds, except we don't call ourselves nerds, we're just fans, fans living exactly 55 years ago. So right now it is November 1st, 1966. And yesterday was October 31st and tomorrow is November 2nd. And we've been doing this since 1958. So we've been publishing an article every other day on Analog Science Fiction, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Twilight Zone episodes, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, Doctor Who, Star Trek just debuted. We're watching Star Trek every week as it airs at the original airtime with original commercials. I mean, we have an audience of about 20 to 30 people. And by the way, if you're interested, let me know. I can show you how you can join us. Well, please do give me any relevant links and I will put them in the show notes so our listeners can go check it out. Absolutely. We've been nominated for the Hugo three times, and we've been really honored for that. And I think it's because we are not only interested in history, but we're kind of shining a spotlight on today, both by noting the resonances and also showing where everything came from. And the alternate history element, of course, is I didn't exist 55 years ago, but my character does. And so we've created these whole personas that didn't exist back then, but now do and have our own limited effect on things. One of the things I joked about when we were when we were on the Hugo ballot, you know, I would say, you know, 
We've been nominated for the Hugo, and yet nowhere on the 1964 Hugo ballot do we appear. We're going to have to do something about that. <laughs> and how much do you find yourself trying to um, put yourself in the mindset of someone from back then? Like, do you, do you try and be like, okay, I'm a guy born in the 30s, uh, or or do you? How, how do how, what's your approach when you write a post? Well, I, I'm flattered that you think I must have been born in the 30s because actually I would have been born in 1919, but. Uh... <laughs> It's a very immersive phenomenon. And and I will tell you, last year, when last year was 1965 and we didn't have a pandemic in 1965, it was much more fun to just retreat into the past than to live in our present for a great many reasons. Now, I'm, I'm you know, look, I'm, I'm very stuck in the time. I can smell uh, an anachronism in the writing a mile away. I, I live the era a lot more than even people who lived through the era, because for them, if they're still alive, their memories are now 55 years old uh, and they're faded tapes. And I think, by the way, to, to carry it back to the topic at hand, when you're writing an alternate history, you have to, when you write these books, you really have to put yourself in this completely alien universe. Otherwise, you get, uh, you leak from our universe, right? You have to adopt the values and the history and the universe. And that's just a really interesting, immersive sort of thing. I mean, I guess it's that way in any writing, but the further you go into speculative fiction and the further you diverge in alternate alternate history fiction, you've really got to be able to just stick your head in a completely different place. For instance, if you're depicting homosexuality in the 60s, you have to be very mindful that it was illegal and you could be put in jail for stroking a man's hand in public. At the same time, people have been people for the past million years. So if you write a person, chances are you're going to do okay. Obviously, there's there's completely different value systems depending on where you are in the country and whether you, which religions you subscribe to and whatever. So you can't go too far. But if you go back to the 60s, for instance, there are certain places where our modern values pretty much obtain. If you go to San Francisco in 1966, you will find kindred spirits. You will not find completely alien people. Your progressive attitudes do exist back then. They're held by fewer people, but they're around. You don't have to write truly outre language or what, or use slang every other word, because not everybody did. Not everybody today does. In this particular conversation that we've had, I've hardly used any idiomatic language, and someone in 50 years will probably, God willing, listen to this and understand it. So it's, it's not, it is both harder and easier than people think to write an alternate history or a different world or something. Just don't try too hard, but educate yourself a bit. Well, as, as we're in the end, may I ask, would there be any further uh, reading recommendations of either contemporary uh, alt history writers who you feel are doing interesting things, uh, or maybe any lost classics from the past that more people should know about? Yeah, just put me on the spot. I already like threw out all my favorite what ifs, and and now oh, sorry, <laughs> now I don't have any more for you. Well, I will. All right, I, I will say that as much as you know, World War II and everything. But there's a mod on alternatehistory.com named Calbear, C A L B E A R, and he has the, one of the the most definitive timelines called the Anglo-American Nazi War, <laughs> and the premise is that the the Germans win at Stalingrad and managed to take Europe. They can't take England because 
Um, not only is it impossible to take England in Sea Lion, but it is so impossible that it has become a canard at alternatehistory.com. They call it the unmentionable uh, sea mammal because it is just so ridiculous when people will bring it up and they'll point you to a thread that has a hundred different threads debunking the possibility of the Nazis invading England. Anyway, I bring that up because the, the premise of Cal Bear's thing, originally he just did this because he wanted to explore in sort of a morbid way how the Holocaust would have gone had the Germans been able to carry out everything they wanted to do. But then he decided to finish the timeline, which is that in 1954, the Cold War between America and England and Germany becomes a hot war. And at that point, we have nuclear weapons. And it is the detailing of the next three years of the war. And it, you know, it's World War II, but it's it's way bigger than it ever could have been. And culture is different, society is different, and it's it's a riveting read. It's a depressing read, but boy, if you want to see nukes and anthrax and everything else fall in Berlin in 1957, well, you got your wish. <laughs> um, okay, well, thank you so much for being generous with your time uh, with us today. Um, where can people find you and what perhaps uh, have you got on the horizon in terms of projects? So um, Galactic Journey is at galacticjourney.org. That's updated every other day. We run Journey Press, that's at journeypress.com. And we write uh, diverse and unusual science fiction and fantasy. At some point, I'm gonna publish a collection of short stories and that will include alternate history in it. And we're always publishing interesting things. Those are the two biggies, galacticjourney.org and journeypress.com. I don't think anyone will be disappointed if they go to either of those places. And, uh, and I hope people will buy my, our, our books and, uh, and read our articles. Okay, cool. Well, I guess if that's everything then, thank you so much for your time and so glad we got to meet you. It was my pleasure. I hope we can do something again. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.